Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's bonus episode of Dead Pundit Society. This is the second free episode that I'm airing this week, and we're going to continue on the theme that we started with earlier in the week with my fantastic episode featuring Jenny Brown, where we talked about her new book, Birth Strike. That's right, we're going to be talking about the intersection of class struggle, materialism, and feminism going back to the 1960s and 70s. We're going to keep that theme going into this week. My guest today is Kirsten Swinth. She has a great new book out. It's called Feminism's Forgotten Fight, and it's a critical reinterpretation of the history, the legacy, the trajectory of the second wave feminist movement. And Kirsten is an historian at Fordham University. So she goes into the archives and she discovers the untold history, the untold narrative of that second wave feminist movement. And contrary to the popular imagination of, you know, perpetrated by the Gloria Steinems and the Hillary Clintons of the world and the lean end feminism of the Sheryl Sandbergs, the second wave feminist movement was often far more radical. It was driven by materialist demands and it was quite diverse, contrary to the mythology that it was just a movement of uppity white women that has been propagated not only by the right wing, but also by radical and left wing sectors as well. So this is a critical and crucial reinterpretation of that moment, revealing the class struggle, materialist oriented underbelly of that second wave movement that I think we need to work hard to try to resuscitate in our present uptick in struggle. So I'm going to bring you that interview in just a moment. But before we get to that, this bonus episode is brought to you by patrons of the Dead Pundit Society. It's an honor and a pleasure to be brought into your earbuds once or twice a week for free. But keep in mind that this is a project that takes many, many hours of work and research and recording and editing and production. Uh, and this all happens behind the scenes. There's a lot more to this gig of being a podcast producer than just talking into a microphone a couple hours a week. So uh, this is a full-time job, and I appreciate my patrons for supporting me in that effort. I think we're spreading some critical politics here. We're going into an exciting moment, and we need a large and capacious left-wing media ecosystem. And I'm proud to be contributing to that, and I hope to continue doing so well into the future. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Check out our various reward tiers. We try to reward our patrons generously for their contributions. You'll get access to bonus episodes. We just launched a subscriber-only forum. We've had some really great discussion over there so far. So if you want access to me, to my brilliant patrons, to chat it up, ask questions, ask for reading recommendations, network, talk about struggles in the real world, uh, strategize about how to win this socialist century that we are undertaking, uh, hit up that forum, but you're only going to get access if you're a patron. So go to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits, and we'll see you over there. All right, on with the show. It is my pleasure today to be joined by Kirsten Swinth. She is a professor of history and American studies at Fordham University. We're going to be chatting about her latest book, Feminism's Forgotten Fight. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnets, Kirsten. So happy to be here and get a chance to talk with you. So your book makes a set of really important counterfactual claims about the legacy of the second wave feminist movement, what was called at the time just the plain women's movement, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an interesting path that we might traverse throughout the course of this interview, I think, as well, and to trace the birth of the so-called second wave feminist movement from what it was initially conceived as, as the women's movement. Any initial thoughts on that? Because I got to be honest with you, over the past couple of weeks, I've been doing some reading and I'm quite fond of the label women's movement. Let's talk a little bit about how the second wave feminist movement became the second wave. So 
I mean, I think people in the 1960s and 1970s saw themselves participating in the women's movement. But when we use the term second wave, we're generally referencing or drawing a distinction between the surge of mass grassroots activism that happened in the 1960s and 1970s around women's issues with a self-conscious feminist intention with the surge of grassroots mass activism around the suffrage campaign in the early 20th century, uh, where we witnessed the first kind of highly self-conscious feminist activism uh, unfold. So second wave is is a term that I use in the book to emphasize the kind of mass grassroots dimension of the women's movement in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, as much as anything else, not to suggest the absence of um, committed fights for gender equality in other periods of time. Right. So I guess what what I'm trying to point to there is this interesting way in which, uh, you know, some of the most interesting books being a kind of amateur uh, historian myself, I love reading books on history. I mean, our audience are, we're all kind of into the dusty books. And uh, one of the most interesting approaches that has emerged in the study of the First World War is this kind of uh, trying to put ourselves in the, in the, in the eyes, in the seats, in the positions of the people who are going through that experience at the time. Of course, long prior to there being a second world war Mm -hmm. and to have that kind of historical relief by which to compare the first event from the second Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a certain kind of novelty and an innovation and an excitement that perhaps can be dulled in hindsight when we're comparing the first something to the second or the second to the third, for example. I mean, you know, I take your point. I think that's an important one. And, you know, historians always struggle with making the horizon of the possible for their historical actors alive for their readers. I think for women active in the movement in the 1960s and 1970s, there was no doubt in their minds that they were on the precipice of something extraordinary and new. So while there was a movement, a mass movement in the early 20th century in the U.S., between 1920 and the mid-1960s, much of the energy of that movement had fallen away. The country was far more conservative in terms of its gender politics than it had been in the early 20th century. And the sort of sense of promise and widening horizons for women and that were rooted in demands for equality had kind of faded away. So for activists in the 60s and 70s, their experience of it was a, of, of a kind of revelation of a discovery, both of their own history, of course, but also of the possibilities in shaping their lives and in shaping the lives of women more generally in new ways. Well said. I think it's an interesting thing for us to reflect on, for the audience to reflect on as we work through this book, this kind of uh, the novelty of that moment and really what it meant. And and of course, what's in the the background of my concerns here is the way in which in the wake of what is often called the third wave feminist movement or just the kind of contemporary moment that we find ourselves in. One of the things that you're reacting to in writing this book, I think, is the way in which the radicality the the sheer nature of the the radicalness of the movement is oftentimes dulled down in historical perspective and one of the main contributors to that outcome are some of the participants of the movement themselves you talk about their amnesia so could you tell us a little bit about the actors in that moment and how some of them like say Betty Friedan have sort of revised the stakes and the aims and the outcomes of the second wave feminist movement So I think what the most familiar stories we encounter about second wave feminism today, those stories got cemented in public memory in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And those memories go something like 
activists of the second wave threw open the doors to women in the workplace, particularly liberal activists, but they didn't care about the larger structures of family or transforming society in deeper ways. There's a kind of shorthand that we sometimes call a kind of individualistic ethos of having it all, right? That's the media version of it. What happened in the late 70s and early 80s is that that media vision became more prominent in women's magazines, newspapers, reports on the movement. Conservative opposition to the women's movement gained an enormous amount of ground over the 1970s and with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 came to dominate the American political scene. So that by the early 1980s, feminists like Betty Friedan are kind of taking up some of the attacks that the movement's opponents are making and embracing them in her own right and sort of saying, yeah, we didn't do anything about the family and kind of failing to account for the history of even some of her own activism and certainly of the activism of organizations that she led and was involved in, like the National Organization for Women. So let's circle all the way back to the beginning then, because we're talking about a little bit of uh, historical amnesia. Your book really tries to excavate the moment as it was lived. Let's talk a little bit about your process first, because you are a professional historian. Uh, Historians, as all academics and all serious researchers, take their methodological approach very seriously. So how did you sort of excavate the sort of lived experience in this of, of this moment in such a novel way? What are some of the resources that books have all too often leaned on over the past couple of decades that have had a very limited view of the second wave moment? And how did you rectify that in your research? So I was very lucky to be working on this project at a moment when I could uh, stand on the shoulders of others (laughs) who had done some initial work in thinking about the movement. So first of all, there are some really excellent histories of the movement, many of them written by um, historians who had participated in the movement and who had taught us huge amounts about the experiences of those involved in it, kinds of issues that came to the fore, but had been caught up in many ways in the kind of specifics, the inner workings of what it felt like to navigate and negotiate among all the different strands of the movement. I also was very lucky to build on the shoulders of people who had been thinking about the activism of women in the welfare rights movement and it as a distinctive brand of Black feminism and a set of legal historians who had been working on the kind of terrain trod by uh, feminist lawyers. I actually came to this not intending to write a history of a social movement. I didn't mean to write a book about feminism when I first started this project. I've been interested in the broader cultural history of working motherhood and how that's related to the social and economic revolution around paid labor for mothers. So I'm a, I'm a kind of cultural slash social historian who was thinking about working motherhood, and I kept coming up against a whole array of things that second feminists had done that I kept discovering discounted in all kinds of settings, whether it was by professional historians or popular media or even scholars working on the so-called issue of work and family. I thought, wait, there's a, a larger story to be told here. So I began looking in things like the records of the National Organization for Women. I began reading the pamphlets and newsletters and memoirs of radical activists. And so, you know, that was how I managed to see a whole set of things that had not been put together in the same way by others. I kind of came at it from a new angle of vision. So let's talk a little bit about the mythos of the second wave women's movement here. You open the book in your introduction with a really excellent uh, epigraph here. It's by Letty Cotton Pogrebin. This is from uh, Miss Magazine, 1978. She asks, we must ask why it is that our struggle for survival in an unjust system is countered not with political change, but with upping the ante on female perfection. And so there's this legacy that emerges from the second wave moment, which I think is a real flawed 
interpretation of, of what the real impulses and motivations were there. And I think this can be captured for our millennial audience uh, and a little bit of a, a little cultural uh, sort of analysis here in the, in the character of Jesse Spano in Saved by the Bell. Are you familiar with Saved by the Bell? Did you did you catch that? Did you did you are, were you it's, around? You know, it it's it, I watched an episode or two, but I can't say that I know the show well. So tell me about Jesse Spano. That's right. So if you're of my generation, this was a formative uh, sort of cultural production for our era. And Jesse Spano is this sort of uh, very uh, she's she's blonde, she's you know beautiful, but at the same time very interested in her studies and very interested in, in not coming off as a quote bimbo, as they would say in, on the show in the early '90s, and it's unwokeness. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she was very, um, you know, one of the shows she got addicted to caffeine pills because she was constantly pushing herself to achieve more and more and get into the best college and get the gr- best grades and be the valedictorian and kind of in, in, in an essence, you know, quite explicitly to have it all. And she was always, uh, she was kind of known on the show to be a quote feminist. Nothing better perhaps encapsulates what you're trying to explain this kind of faux legacy of second wave feminism than the character of Jesse Spano. So tell us about this, this having it all. Where does this come from? So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That sounds like an apt characterization of this having it all ideal. So the having it all ideal in its sort of simplest form is that women can have, you know, career, family, and participation in public and civic life, just like men have always had. But it gets translated into a media version that imagines it as an individual enterprise, that if women just organize their lives efficiently, manage their time properly, think about their careers appropriately, they can do it all by themselves. So, you know, there are a couple of problems with this, of course. First is that it puts all the effort on individual women and leaves, oh, everything from men to society out of the equation. Second of all, it suggests that the issue is really just one of time management rather than one of broader restructuring of society at every level from, you know, the intimate sphere to public policy to workplaces. The having it all idea, I think, took hold because it was a a lovely media shorthand, because it did speak to genuine aspirations for more egalitarian possibilities in life pathways for women and men. Of course, right? Feminists wanted women to have the kinds of possibilities to care for and raise children while also not having the doors shut in their faces for work opportunities and good and decent pay. But when conservatives came in in the 1980s, the having it all ideal lined up with conservative visions of kind of individual choice as the primary modus operandi, right? We see this sometimes in talking about consumer choices or individual freedom in the marketplace or freedom of contract. Well, that got extended into the family with, you know, individual choices about how they org- how people organize their family lives or more specifically how women organize their family lives. And it shut down the larger conversation about transforming society, institutions, and undercutting patriarchy that had driven the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. You talk about Phyllis Shafley, the conservative movement icon, her focus on you know these kind of traditional family structures and the way that this faux legacy of the second wave movement was interpreted and really weaponized by this uh, conservative movement in slandering this movement in terms of, you know, not caring about families, not caring about raising children, not caring about these kind of uh, sort of the material aspects that most women in the country face at some point in their lives, and instead sort of painted the movement as a bunch of unhinged radicals who want to sort of tear down the fabric of society. And you paint a narrative that's quite the contrary. I mean, it's every chapter and every 
story is is intimately focused on you know not only just the intimate relations of between men and women and husbands and wives and and so on but also you know the understanding and the recognition that you know not families and children are not for everyone certainly not for every woman and not for every one <laughs> every human <laughs> every individual but the vast majority of people in society experience some of these relationships and they they really focused on the material aspects of the needs of of the many in a way that the conservative movement um, would like us to think otherwise. In that sense, you know, I thought about what if you named the book, uh, you know, Feminism's <laughs> Focus on the Family, right? You know, this is the the focus on the family being mm-hmm. James Dobson's, you know, anti-choice, anti, well, everything, just uh, the land of bigotry over there. But uh, tell us a little bit more about that focus on the family family coming out of the second wave movement. Yeah, so the the book unfolds in a kind of, outward spiral. The first few chapters concentrate on feminist efforts to reconstruct the very underlying conception of what makes a normal, healthy woman, what makes a normal, healthy man, and how? what are the basic expectations about the roles that men and women will occupy in the private sphere all of which are designed to broaden life horizons for women in particular, but also for men. There's a chapter in the book on fathers and a cadre of male feminists who fought to transform men's roles as fathers. There's a chapter on intimate relationships and marriage and the you know, broad reconceptualization of marriage to be one of negotiated roles rather than one of fixed sex roles that are designated by biology and birth to men and women. The book moves outward from the early chapter's concentration on transforming family, home, and selfhood to be more egalitarian into feminist aspirations to transform society, to support the work and labor of social reproduction, that is the work and labor of producing children and caring for them. So there are chapters there on the welfare rights movement that look at the Black feminist demand for a guaranteed income. There's a chapter resurrecting the vibrant history of feminist childcare activism. And then I can close the book by looking at the demands on workplaces. So there's work on the ways that feminists fought for um, what they called the right to bear children, which had to do with the flip side of, of the right to reproductive freedom. And that was the right to retain a job, to have a job if you're a mother and retain it the right not to be discriminated against if you're pregnant and in the workplace, and to ensure that if you actually had children, you could have the income to care for them. And then a really, I think, fun chapter that's not been written about before on the work by the uh, organization Federally Employed Women, which was about 50% African-American in its early years, that led a fight uh, along with feminist legislators in Congress like Patricia Schroeder, Shirley Chisholm, Bella Absug, Yvonne Brathwaite-Burke from California for flex time and decent part-time work inside the federal government as a kind of model employer, a model for other workplaces. So I, the book is trying to take a look at a wide array of activism along a, um, a number of different paths to show that starting from the most intimate to the most public, <laughs> from the demands on changing selves and partners to the demands on changing government policy and employers, feminists envisioned a kind of radical reconstructing of how we organized care for families and households in our society. Let's talk about some of the kind of received wisdom about this moment and how it reflects or how it contrasts with uh, the the story that you've presented a little bit here. I think one of the claims, and again, you know, we have to make, well, we don't have to do anything, but I'm, I'm about to make some fairly sweeping and broad claims about what is now called the kind of third wave uh, feminist movement. And this is sort of encapsulated by a lot of important innovations and in kind of strategic and theoretical and conceptual analysis of, of how oppression works in society and, and, and tying that across many different domains and realms of, of work and experience and life and 
different boundaries of sexuality and ethnicity and identity and so on and so forth. But one of the things that you hear if you spend enough time in graduate seminars, <laughs> as I have, unfortunately, or even activist meetings, I would say, is that, well, you know, the second wave movement didn't have a whole lot to say about anyone who wasn't upper middle class and white. And you tell a very different story here that black and Chicano women in particular played a really vital role in pushing the second wave movement forward. And that in a sense, our efforts to, to hold up women of color in this current moment sort of maybe perhaps accidentally erase the efforts of women of color in the second wave movement. Is that, is that a yep, correct? I would agree with that. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think okay. that the, uh, I, I was worried that was going yeah, on the limb. I, was I, I, was I going do limb. think, or I'm, I'm increasingly understanding that for many activists today and possibly also in a variety of kinds of graduate seminars, the account of second wave feminism is one that tells it as a story of activism by white women uh, for the concerns of white women alone. And, you know, the book does make the argument that the movement drew in activists of color, that Black feminists were at the forefront on some of the issues that I talk about in the book, for example, in leading the welfare rights movement, in activism to value housework around the fight for ensuring the minimum wage for paid domestic workers, and also in the fight for flex time with federally employed women. So it's also the case, I just like to remind people that African-American women were some of the earliest leaders, presidents and vice presidents of organizations like the National Organization for Women. So when we tell, when we say now was a white women's organization, we erase those really important leaders out of the picture altogether. Now, of course, nobody wants to minimize the conflicts or deny the obliviousness of, you know, many white women or the social situatedness that they brought to their activism. So obviously there were conflicts. The alliances were sometimes fraught and fragile, say, between welfare rights activists and liberal feminists in major national organizations like the National Organization for Women or the National Women's Political Caucus. And in an era, right, remember, we're in the era of Black separatism and a real transformation in the Black freedom struggle. Many Black women and other women of color argued for the urgent necessity to forge their own independent organization. So there was organizations like the National Black Feminist Organization, which engaged with some of these issues as well. So the movement's very complex, as is any major, massive grassroots movement. And in the book, my goal is to do justice to that complexity. Right. I think that's really important. And, and all too often, you know, the urgency of today's, today's demands, and they're real demands felt by real people. But sometimes I think too often, the graduate student and the activist uh, spheres alike collapse nuance for what I've have called on the show in previous times for the sake of mm -hmm. political expediency. And at times I think, you know, when, 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 a, when something, when there's a pressing matter in society, it really impacts the direct experiences of so many people. I think maybe we need to do the opposite. We need to, we need to give it the opportunity give, give the nuance an opportunity to develop and shine and, 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 and sort of linger in that complexity to, to find out sort of what it delivers. And I think your book does that really well, which is why <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you about it uh, a little bit more here. Let's talk about uh, another one of the, the, the dynamics that we can sort of unpack as we go. I think one of the, the unfortunate or incorrect, incorrect inheritances of the second wave movement was that it didn't speak to black women in this country because they were already in the workforce at uh, higher rates than white women. But you uncover a really interesting statistic here that I think speaks to the necessity of resuscitating the, the social welfare state in, in our nation today, because you revealed actually that the statistics uh, flipped from the 1950s mm -hmm. to the 1970s, that approximately one third of 
only one third of black women were out in the workforce in the 19, early 1950s. And by the 1970s, that had flipped. Two thirds of women were in the, in the workforce by the late 1970s. And so these dynamics were, were felt by women uh, across various uh, ethnic and racial uh, divisions uh, alike, which would signal that the dissolution of the welfare state and these kind of protections that we experience going into neoliberalism impacted women of all ethnicities and races. Is that a correct summary? Yeah. So I, I think it's important to take us back, sort of your go back to your original point about getting us out of our what we know today and getting us back into what people knew in 1960 or 1963, which is the starting point for my book. And a couple of critical things are going on there. The first is we're at the end of an extraordinary kind of post-war expansion of the economy. And, and we now talk about that period as the sort of great compression when inequality is shrinking in the U.S. So while obviously African-American households faced greater rates of impoverishment, lower wages, systematic discrimination, and higher rates of wage earning by women in Black households than in white households, it didn't mean that that economic expansion wasn't also expanding the economic horizons of Black households. And the, the civil rights movement was opening up the doors to many, particularly Black men, to employment opportunities that had not been available to them before. At the same time, the cultural weight of the male breadwinner ideal was extraordinary. So the male breadwinner ideal is the basic norm that men are breadwinners, women are homemakers. And pretty much everything in society said that that was right, normal, morally valued, psychologically healthy, what children needed to develop, what produced a stable society. It was an aspiration that vast majorities of Americans adhered to, believed in deeply, and that included households of color. So there might have been some critical takes on it or skepticism, but the the norm was strong, <laughs> I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, it seems as though we've watched the help so many times that we uh, sort of take that as a representation of African-American households across the country throughout that time, rather than just the lived experience of a certain kind of class, yeah. a certain kind of region. It was interesting to see the statistic, actually, that this male breadwinner ethos was dominant in, in, across all identities at that time. Yeah. And, you know, the historian in me is a little cautious and wants to qualify, but it was the dominant norm and a lived reality for significant majorities of Americans in this period. And again, we don't have to erase the experiences no. of those where that wasn't the norm or the luxury. I mean, I think we that's that's where nuance and complexity comes in, being able to hold many things up in the air at the same time without diminishing one or the other. And I think emphasizing the significance of it as a norm helps us understand better the lives of those who stood outside the norm and the weight of what they were up against culturally, socially, and in terms of kind of policy and opportunity. So it's helpful to see the, not to downplay the norm, but to understand the role that it played at a given moment across a wide array uh, of people's lives. Right. And to, I mean, you know, this is primarily a, a politics podcast. We do cover a lot of history and mm -hmm. we try to do it well uh, in, in the vein of a professional historian. But, you know, my, my political concern here with why I'm kind of honing in on this history, trying to get some more precision and add some complexity is that all too often in political and academic spaces, it's presumed that that narrative sort of gets held up. And it's presumed, therefore, that the social welfare state didn't really address the needs of people of color in that moment. And, and therefore, it's taken as a lesson or a, a, a warning uh, against uh, fighting for such measures in the present, which I think is a really dangerous and counterproductive legacy to hold up. Uh, because as we should unpack here in, in the coming and uh, the rest of the episode, we'll talk about how the male breadwinner household was uh, certainly not a just system and it needed to be dismantled. But alongside of that, unfortunately, due to economic shifts, 
uh, we saw the dismantling of the social welfare state, which which also had disastrous impacts on the aims of the women's movement. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I get the privilege of being a historian and and stepping aside from the intricacies of the ins and outs of policy baits today about how best to construct social policy. But I do think that feminists of the 1960s and 1970s envisioned the possibility of expanding and widening the reach of the social welfare state, as well as transforming some of its underlying premises in the service of greater gender and racial justice. I think that was a widely held belief, by the way, of activists in a wide array of social movements of the, of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. We'll, we'll get back to the interpersonal dimension here, because I think, as I've mentioned on the show multiple times, I think some people on the left today are a little bit allergic to this notion of progress because there are a lot of really important critiques of progress, right? That this is kind of an ideological construct, that the arc of progress just sort of takes care of itself. and We sort of stand back and let history do its work. And I know you're cringing as an, as an historian at, you know, at those types of suggestions. And so it's right that the left would push back on that. But I think when there is progress, we should also not shy away from that to suggest that women couldn't have credit cards or they couldn't seek divorce or they couldn't uh, have certain access to workplaces. I mean, these are real victories. And, and there, there has been such a thing as progress in the interpersonal and the interrelational realm. You think of doting fathers and very tender, you know, I, a lot of my friends, you know, being in my audience, being in their late twenties and thirties will, ha- will have experiences that maybe even they, they themselves being a father of, of having very tender, caring moments with their child. And that's just not something that would have happened in the 1950s. Um, yeah, not in the same way. So I do think that, you know, feminists very powerfully and pervasively tore apart some of the fundamental underlying assumptions about what made manhood, what made womanhood, what roles did men occupy, what roles did women occupy, how might we deconstruct those categories altogether? And in doing so, they applied that intelligence to a whole host of fields. Um, We have a whole new kind of sociology and psychology out of feminist insights that have produced a whole array of new knowledge about the kinds of positive consequences of male involvement or father's involvement in, you know, uh, children's early lives, which the dominant psychology of the 1950s thought of as highly problematic and interrupting the necessary normal healthy adjustment of a child. So we have a, a whole host of fundamental underlying assumptions that we kind of take for granted today that came out of the really compelling activism and intellectual work of feminists. Right. I think, I mean, it's, it's, I certainly don't want to skip over the first few chapters here where you talk about the kind of the relationship to mm-hmm. self, women to, to self, and then of course, women in interrelational uh, or intergender kind of, um, d- definitions and social norms and expectations. Those, those are all really important things. But this being, again, like more, more in the realm of kind of thinking about uh, policy mm-hmm. or, or what have you, those deserve attention. But we're going to move to the thing that I think is the real lesson for today in many senses, and that the second wave feminists were absolutely unequivocal about the need for the state to intervene in a variety of ways, whether that's in the legal realm, the economic realm, you know, the social wealth, the social welfare movement coming out of the black feminist movement in the 1970s, uh, you you integrate with the the broader history and trajectory of the feminist movement, which I think is a is a real historical innovation there. That those two those two things hadn't really been brought together. So, what kind of picture do we get when we bring in these demands for a social welfare state with the more traditional demands of uh, second wave feminism? I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't think it ever occurred to feminists that the state didn't have a role to play, right? They, I think, um, they understood that society had to pick up, you know, had to step up to the plate, essentially. 
Just many of them were Marxist and socialist feminists who came to thinking about feminist activism from a radical perspective. They were thinking about the problem of social reproduction, and they understood that it was a, a, a much larger issue than with any individual household. So they saw the state as having a role in a variety of ways. They fought for childcare, for example, to be a public good, like public schools and libraries and parks. They didn't see it as something to enable women to work, you know, eight to six and have harried lives. No, it was just a public good. (laughs) They saw the state as having a role in underwriting the caretaking labor of mothers, in particular in this period. So this was what we saw in the arguments made by the welfare rights movement of the late 60s and early 70s, but also by an anti-poverty feminist network in the 1970s. They saw the state as having a role in regulating discrimination against mothers and pregnant women in the workplaces. And again, that was not about individual women keeping jobs, getting or keeping jobs, although that mattered, of course. But it was linked to a much broader vision of social supports that enabled women to be full citizens, right? The argument was you couldn't be a full, equal citizen in our society without full and equal opportunities to have families, have employment, sustain yourself, and regulating women's employment so that there wasn't discrimination against them because they were mothers or about to bear children was part of a broader vision of enabling women like men to have full lives. Right. I think one of the ways to really bring that out in, in kind of historical relief relief is to, you know, venture a kind of a, a comparison, a comparative project here between, you know, then and, and now, or the, or what we call the, in the wake of, of neoliberal, the neoliberal era, the neoliberal capitalist moment, wherein, you know, what are rightly and broadly considered feminist issues are funnily enough, funny enough how this works, are oftentimes as separated as possible from the kind of material necessities of actual women, whether that be in the household, in the realm of healthcare, in the workplace, and so on. Uh, let's talk about that transformation because we've hinted at the uh, the victory of the conservative movement coming out of the 70s and going into the 80s. But we haven't talked a whole lot about the economic processes that led to the way in which the legacy of the feminist movement has been altered just to kind of champion the entry of women into the workplace while ignoring all of the other kind of social rights elements of that movement. Yeah, um, I, I hope I'm getting, by, with this answer, at what you're asking, Adam, and if not, sure. try me again. <laughs> um, sure, I'm just kind of giving some general provocations. To kind of <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. Maybe that one was a little loose, but we'll see what you come up with. Well, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that when feminist activists, the sort of grassroots second-wave feminism unfolded, starting in the mid-1960s, it was at a moment of economic and technological optimism. And I think there was a sense that there was abundance, there was prosperity, that it was possible to legitimately envision a world in which everybody might work part-time, for example, and still sustain families and households. And that optimism of the 60s that shaped some of the early feminist thinking ran headlong into the crises of the 1970s, so that by the end of the 1970s and into the 1980s, it became very clear that supporting households on one single earner, especially households with children, was increasingly difficult and nearly impossible to maintain the kind of middle-class living standard that had seemed so promising in the 50s and 60s. So feminists kind of, with their expansive vision of broadening social rights, expanding social interventions, um, uh, those things hit um, 
economic imperatives. Women needed wages, mothers needed wages, not just to provide extras, uh, as had been the vision for maternal wage earning in the 50s and 60s, but to keep their families economically afloat. And, you know, you mentioned neoliberalism and conservatism. So neoliberalism and conservatism of the 1980s then undercut and critiqued and attacked and made politically uh, impossible to achieve the broad social vision that feminists had wanted to advance while leaving us with the legacy of the 1970s economic crises and the economic transformations of you know, family well-being that those produced. So now we're left with the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean-in model. That's sort of what we're left with. And this notion that Betty Friedan sort of pushes in these kind of odd recollections of that moment that, well, we we really did want women to have it all. And maybe we were wrong in, in pushing that dimension. Let's talk a little bit about the historical amnesia that you discovered when you when you looked at some of the more contemporary re- recollections of that movement coming from the actors themselves. Yeah, so let me just say a little bit about the uh, the Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in model. You know, obviously, I would argue that that is the most recent incarnation of the having it all myth, right? The idea that the feminist goal is to enable individual women, if they just work harder and manage right, to have a version of equality. But you know, feminist activists did not disappear in the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Um, And I think it's really important just for the sake of historical record and political activism to acknowledge that feminists fought to defend the gains, whatever gains they had made, against massive cuts in the 1980s. They were sort of tenaciously holding on (laughs) to whatever was possible in terms of the social welfare state when cuts that were targeted particularly at women and children were initiated. I think the Reagan administration cut social welfare supports around 25%. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of pulling that number off the top of my head at the moment, but massively in the early 80s. And feminist networks did the best they could to staunch that flow. Uh, the same is true, interestingly, of feminist initiatives in the 1980s for comparable worth. So another strategy that feminists developed in the 1980s was to tackle the low pay that traditionally women's jobs uh, awarded. So women's service jobs like nursing and other caregiving work or teaching or, uh, you know, secretarial and office support. They fought for comparable worth to say these are jobs are comparable to more traditionally male jobs and thus deserve pay increases. The goal there was, again, to tackle some of the underlying economic inequalities that made sustaining and supporting families very difficult. So, We think of feminism today for some reason (laughs) as Sheryl Sandberg, but in the process, we miss a kind of ongoing labor by feminist activists, even if we're not seeing a kind of mass grassroots feminist mobilization. And I'll make one other point. I know this is a bit of a long answer, but just in terms of politics and feminist activism, a lot of feminist political energy and a lot of feminist mass mobilizations in the 1980s and after went into defending reproductive rights. So, you know, feminists worked extraordinarily hard to ensure that a wide array of efforts to undercut legalized abortion, for example, didn't uh, go through or to minimize the extent to which those rights were curtailed. So it's important not to equate feminism and all of feminist foundational political work with that more having it all stereotype. But I didn't answer your question about amnesia. Do you want me to try to talk a little bit about that some more? <laughs> no, that, that's quite all right. I, I'm sort of we're leading you. I'm leading you all over the place, and I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of thinking about what what you privilege and how you historicize this. Being a historian, I, I love the fact that every time I ask a question, you always take us back 40 years. That's great. <laughs> I think that's I mean, that's 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 what I, I love. I love that approach here on on DPS. 
And I'm glad that you're taking that tact, which is why I don't, I don't really like focus pointed questions. I, I sort of like general provocations, but uh, <laughs> to, just to, to sort of um, boost an argument that you made uh, just a moment ago and, and it maps onto um, something I push on this show quite a lot is actually in your own book, you, you write about how in January 1979, President Jimmy Carter fired Bella Abzug as the head of his National Advisory Committee for Women. Uh, because Adzug, Abzug had protested uh, his upcoming cuts in public programs that benefited women. And so we, we forget often, uh, all too often, as David Harvey, uh, one of the prime scholars of neoliberalism, likes to remind us as well, is that neoliberalism started as an economic crisis that even that predated Reagan. Mm-hmm. And that Jimmy Carter really had his hands full, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to put it lightly, mm-hmm. uh, really had his hands full in the wake of this kind of stagflation crisis that was gripping the United States and the world. And, you know, so cuts to the social safety net preceded Reagan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's one thing for, for us to think about, that this was a really kind of, this wasn't purely ideological. It was a real structural, economic, uh, global and political crisis mm-hmm. that uh, stripped not only the women's movement, but you think about the labor movement. What what the, the, the I started to call the labor movement a hollow shell. It's, it's way more than that today. There are a lot of strikes in it. There's a lot of um, sparks and shoots and a lot of exciting militant kind of action in the realm of labor today. But but what we were left with, like say in the 90s, in the, the dregs of the 90s in the labor movement was not the result of anyone's sort of highest aspirations and inclinations. It was the result of a defeat. And so maybe talk about some of this kind of historical amnesia uh, as, as perhaps resulting from this uh, historical defeat of the 1980s. Yeah. Family became a conservative issue in the 1980s because of the ways that conservatives styled themselves as pro, quote, pro family. And they led what they called the, or what historians still call the pro family movement with a, a set of claims to uphold, indeed, even, quote, restore a traditional male breadwinner, female homemaker family model feminists and liberals and progressives had a kind of complicated dance to do around the question of the family. Now, some of it had to do with some really important political work to call into question the legitimacy of a heterosexual nuclear family as the family, right? To move us from understanding questions of the family from the family to plural families. And that was critical work that I think was done starting in the late 70s and into the 1980s. Progressives and liberals continue to push on that front. But, you know, for feminists to go back and kind of think about, you know, the amnesia piece of it has to do with celebrating feminist activism on the family in the 70s was not exactly cool in the 1980s. <laughs> I see. I see. So they were they were concerned about the way that uh, the lens the lens had shifted, yeah. and, and their their, their uh, yeah. championing of the family would be refracted. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. it was a it's a it was a complicated thing uh, to try to stake claims around, um, and and to, and to organize political activism around, and so you know I think that's a piece of the shift in strategy a piece of the amnesia. I mean, I think the amnesia is due to defeats. I mean, they were just defeated. Feminists were just defeated. They didn't, their vision didn't come to fruition. They were massively ahead of their time. And the kinds of imaginings of reorganized gender and family roles and social responsibilities were really pushing at the outer limits of what felt like right and comfortable to people, even in 1980, even in 1985, even in 1990. I mean, my sense of it is that probably only in the last 10 to 15 years would you be seeing at a kind of core gut level, those shifts of what counts as right and normal and gender and family roles, you know, in that very internal sense of what counts, really deepening. So while that people might have been committed to formal equality, that kind of internal sense of what makes a good mother, what makes a good father, who's a good man, who's a good woman, what's the right way to organize all of those roles, 
has been, you know, it's a long-term process of transformation. And I think the conservative resists a support for an idealized male breadwinner family uh, is weakening. I first heard of your book before it had been released due to the efforts or the recommendations of some really, really great sort of socialist, feminist, uh, childhood parenting sort of family-oriented activists, particularly coming out of uh, Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin put out a really fantastic issue. Uh, The issue itself was titled Childhood. And it did something that I think, you know, well, the results, the, I started to say, I think it, they did something that was sort of different or something that cuts against the grain. But the result, the reception of that issue demonstrates and proves that it was certainly cut against the grain because people were, uh, many people were highly critical of that issue for a variety of reasons. And they felt that it, it, uh, it was overly normative. And that the socialist left shouldn't be focusing on families and shouldn't be focusing on parenthood because not all people have families and not all people want to be parents. And that perhaps projecting this uh, ideal, this normative kind of category of of a nuclear family is uh, somehow destructive or counterproductive to truly, you know, left wing aims. And this is a live and active debate today. But one of the things I think that your book sort of points to, and correct me if I'm, you know, off off the mark here of what your aims are, but is that all of the left has really taken the reign of common sense in many, many realms. You think about the the enthusiasm of Medicare for all, or just the the demand to be sure that everyone has access to healthcare in this country, which is something that's really cropped up anew in the last decade. And the left has really taken the mantle of common sense around many other cultural and social issues. But the family is something that they don't really want to touch. It's it's still dirty. It's still risky in the way that you just laid out with respect to the dominance of the family in coming out of the 1980s. What do you make of that reluctance to take on the family as as a real essential site of struggle on the left today? Gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think Kate Mann's brilliant analysis of misogyny in her recent book, Down Girl, teaches us something about a core dynamic of caregiving and receiving of caregiving that might tell us something about some pretty deep-seated issues we have around allocation of caregiving responsibilities um, and how what people feel entitled to or not. So I might posit elements of misogyny as a piece of it, but I also understand the sense that it can be retrograde to advocate for the family, right? <laughs> and to raise concerns of the family. So I hope there's some space for ands. I'm a big advocate of ands. I think um, 85 to 90% of women have children, um, and close to that high percentage of men uh, have children as well. So vast majorities of us are raising children and caring for children. I also think the concept of family responsibilities is a really powerful concept. Virtually all humans and and all workers have family responsibilities, whether that's care for an elderly family member, care for a disabled family member, care for themselves, care for a beloved one who um, needs support. I, I think getting around the notion that family responsibilities only belong to some subset of us is a really critical piece of the next step in our politics. So I try often to talk about this idea of family responsibilities and the need for society to broadly encompass support for all workers in many cases. I'm often talking about the workplace, all workers' family responsibilities. And 
I think children are a critical subset of thinking about what we need to enable all of us to carry out, you know, and enable most of us to carry out our family responsibilities. And so I don't have a problem with talking about children as a key category there as long as there's an and. And we're understanding that as part of a broader picture and other sets of needs that run in tandem with that. As a former guest of the show and journalist and just really great uh, writer, the way that she produces her formulations, um, Amber Ali Frost said on this very podcast, she said, well, we don't have to make any normative claims about whether or not uh, someone should be a mother or what a nuclear family is. But you just look out in the world and (laughs) she said, I hate to say it, but the barbarians are already at the gates. If, if you know, have you seen it? There are just a lot of kids out there. <laughs> you know? right. So, so how, you know, I think we can just avoid the normative claims by just sort of ad- addressing the fact that there are, you know, whatever we want to, whatever vision we have of the nuclear family or of, of any types of relationships or, or decisions that anyone would make for themselves. You know, we, we live in a world that's always already packed with children and mothers. And fathers, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, 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 so what do we do about that? I like to ask my guests uh, sort of a, a to the barricades, a, sum, a, a kind of a pithy summation sort of question. Um, you know, certainly this is a work of history, but it's, I'm sure it's driven by a certain kind of ideal, a certain kind of passion for the society that you would like to see. Give us some parting words about um, what kind of Uh, politics, what kind of uh, social vision you'd like your book to contribute to? Gosh, that's a great question. At a baseline level, I see a set of practical politics to put one's energy behind. I'm keen on the fight for paid sick days for all. I'm keen on the fight for raising the minimum wage. Um, And I'm keen on the fight for universal paid family leave. Those, like as practical political projects, those are the ones, as well as domestic workers' rights, which is a personal concern of mine, are the ones that I decide to put my own political energies into. But what I took away from writing this book and what animates me is a broader, deeper struggle. Um, The male breadwinner, female homemaker norm is dead. We just not existing in a practical lived economic reality. Now, we can keep going forward with an unjust, unequal remodeling of what that standard might be, one that leads, for example, to large swaths of women of color getting incredibly unjust wages for doing the critical work of caretaking elderly and disabled people in our society. Or we can build on feminist insights of the 1960s and 1970s to advocate for the most gender egalitarian and racially just vision of how we organize family and paid family and paid labor that we possibly can. And I think this is an ongoing struggle. What we're going to put out there as um, ways that we valorize for organizing family and paid labor that we push for in workplaces and social policy. And that's the kind of deep vision uh, that I think, you know, is the one I care the most about, I guess. Well, well said, well said. Uh, you look around the world and just North America in particular, which is sort of my realm of expertise. And for sure, we can say that women are just leading the way in the most militant, you know, struggles for social change today, whether that be, you know, walking the picket lines of of these teacher strikes that are going on across the country or leading the way in the halls of power in Congress. Um, You you have a record number of women elected to Congress this past year. Um, Obviously, you know, um, many of those women sort of immediately uh, gaining various, you know, key committee seats and things like that. And so there's all, we're already, all of these processes are all way, already underway, but I, I love the fact that your book reintroduces us to the second wave women's movement uh, in, in such a way that people like myself and hope my listeners and many others will no longer have to apologize <laughs> <laughs> after they invoke, you know, a certain demand or a certain aspect of that history and that legacy. So. 
you've done a great service and I enjoyed the book. I really encourage my listeners out there to go and pick this up. It's called Feminism's Forgotten Fight. It's out from Harvard University Press. Kirsten Swint, thank you so much for joining us on Dead Planet Society. Thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks again to Kirsten Swint for joining us on today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I enjoyed that conversation. This has been a really useful week for me. I have a, uh, a very, how do you say, fraught relationship with contemporary fem- feminism. I think as many socialists and Marxian inflected types of people like myself often do, not because you know feminism at its core isn't a central value of Marxism or a socialist approach, but because what, what is often passed off as feminism is a very vacuous, um, idealistically charged, you know, uh, set of, you know, aesthetic and lifestyle considerations that, you know, may have a limited utility in various ways, but certainly don't get to the root of the problems faced by the vast, vast, vast majority of working women out there in our society. And so this past week has been a really useful exercise of thinking about how we can transform these contemporary vapid and vacuous notions of feminism into a meaningful class struggle oriented materialist socialist approach to the women's movement and the the needs of uh, society at large. Because as Kirsten laid out, this isn't just about women. This is also about men as much as anything. It's about children. It's about families. It's about broader society at large. And it's high time that socialists took back that, you know, hegemonic appeal of this focus on the family from these right wing ghouls, these monsters who have twisted the meaning of family and turned it into a kind of privatized labor production machine for the benefit of the capitalist class. And so anyway, I've really enjoyed this week. I hope you have too. If you're a member of the Dead Pundit Society, head over to the forum and let's chat it up. Let's talk about these episodes. If you're not a member, you're going to miss out. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll get access to exclusive subscriber-only episodes. We've got a B-side coming out either Sunday or Monday. It's going to be, holy shit, you guys. This B-side is fantastic. It features Ray Kiley. He's a scholar, uh, a very eminent scholar, preeminent scholar. What's the difference between eminent and preeminent? I don't know. he's, He's a preeminent scholar in the UK. And he writes a lot about, you know, political economy and, and that sort of thing. And he's written a fantastic book called The Neoliberal Paradox. And we break that down. We go back into the history of economic thought. And that's a deep, deep dive into neoliberalism for the patrons. Again, if you're not a patron, you're going to miss out on that B-side. So head over to patreon.com, smash that subscribe button. Let's chat it up over there. Patrons, we'll see you on the B-side. Everybody else, see you next week. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...